Good morning. Well, it's such a privilege to be here. Um, I was going to begin with prayer, but since we've already started with prayer, I'll jump right in. So the title on the pu- publicity materials was Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. And I was thinking particularly about delays yesterday because I, as I flew here, my flight was delayed. And you've probably all experienced that before. It's delayed 20 minutes and then 30 minutes and then another 20 minutes. If you knew it was going to be two hours, you could go get a cup of coffee and a magazine and really enjoy two hours by yourself at the airport. But it's not knowing when it's going to end that makes it hard. And the hardest thing is thinking, well, what if my flight's canceled totally? What am I going to do? I've got to be somewhere tomorrow morning. And that is true. That same principle is true of a lot of the waiting seasons in our own life. Um, so for some of us, that may be waiting for marriage, uh, dealing with the loneliness of that, not knowing whether marriage is ever going to come. It may be waiting for children. It may be waiting for children for your children. You know, you, you, as a mother, if you, if you have an adult child who wants to have a baby, you may feel that really keenly. Maybe waiting for a job situation or a health situation where you're, you've been waiting for healing, and you don't know if it's going to come in this life. So I want to talk today about how to deal with those waiting times and how to pray that they will draw us closer to Christ. So if we ask what should we do with our waiting, one answer is to stop hoping. And honestly, that's the answer that Buddhism gives. Uh, the, the core philosophy of Buddhism is if you don't have desires, you can't feel pain. And that is really tempting when we have these tender desires of our hearts and we, they keep going unfulfilled, it can be tempting to just close your heart off and say, well, I'm just not going to hope for this anymore. That way I can't be hurt. But that's not the Christian answer. The scriptures are full of promises that God rewards waiting. I'll read just three of those for you. In Psalm 25, verse 3, we read, None who wait for you, that is God, shall be put to shame. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Isaiah 30, 18 assures God's people, The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I started thinking about waiting because I was single for a long time, much longer than I would have liked to have been. Um, I got married when I was 34, which you all in Birmingham know is quite old to get married in Birmingham, not other places. Uh, But I really longed to be married. I longed to have children. I didn't believe that God had necessarily promised me a husband. So I was constantly dealing with that tension of, Do I keep hoping for this? Should I just move on and make other plans? God, what do you want from me? And what do you want for me in this singleness that I would rather not have? And I really dealt with it. I I thought of it almost in the same way that I used to think about school. I really liked school. I was a conscientious student. I wanted so much to please my teachers. So I would try hard to learn my lesson so I could move on to the next thing, move on to the next assignment, the next grade, eventually graduate. And I found that I approached my waiting very much in the same way. I thought, okay, God wants me to learn something from this. So I'm going to learn my lesson 
and then he'll let me move on to the next thing, which I hoped would be marriage. So my attitude of approaching that was, if I can just learn what God wants to teach me, then I won't have to wait anymore. So I, I think of it as the school of waiting, and I was trying hard to learn my lesson. But I read something by Andrew Murray that transformed the way I looked at the school of waiting. He wrote, At our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, the heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. God graciously uses our needs and desires for help to educate us for something higher than we were thinking of. We were seeking gifts. He, the giver, longs to give himself and to satisfy the soul with his goodness. It is just for this reason that he often withholds the gifts and that the time of waiting is made so long. He is constantly seeking to win the heart of his child for himself. He wishes that we would not only say when he bestows the gift, how good is God, but that long before it comes, and even if it never comes, we should all the time be experiencing, it is good that a man should quietly wait. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. And this really hit home with me. I, I realized God wants me to learn how to wait, not so that I can move on to something else, but so that I can wait well, even if I'm waiting for the rest of my life. And this makes a lot of sense because the school of waiting is not like first grade where you need to move on to, the, to second grade. It's more like if you went to art school. Wouldn't it be crazy if you graduated from art school and said, oh, I'm so glad to be done with that. I never want to draw again. Or if you graduated from medical school and said, oh, been there, done that. No, you graduate from medical school so that you can practice medicine for the rest of your life. Well, God takes us into the school of waiting so that we can learn how to wait well for the rest of our life. It may not be in the same season. It may be a different kind of waiting. But he wants us to realize that waiting is an opportunity to draw near to him, to walk with him. Um, and that is the blessing of waiting. And if we're, we're so focused on, I don't want to wait anymore, we miss that, that blessing. So that season of singleness did end for me um, in a very wonderful, happy way. I, um, I wrote an article on singleness and, and wrestling with contentment as a single person. And it was published by the Gospel Coalition. And a pastor in Manhattan read it. And he Googled me and found my picture and found my email address and wrote to me. And he, he was very, he didn't, he didn't express any interest. He just thanked me for writing the article. And so I Googled him and I wrote him back and we started corresponding. And actually, almost two years ago this week, because it was Thanksgiving Day, he asked me to marry him. And I happily said yes. Uh, so my life changed in a very short time. I was no longer waiting. All of a sudden, it felt like life was full speed ahead. Uh, I left my job here in Birmingham. I was working at Beeson Divinity School, um, moved to New York, singleness over. One wait ended, new waits began. Uh, while we were engaged, my husband's job unexpectedly came to an end. He was an assistant pastor at a church in New York, and he was at the end of a three-year commitment. And we had thought he would stay on at that church, and he, it became clear that was not the right thing. So all of a sudden, we're waiting for a job, and we are living in the most expensive city in the country. Uh, that was a really new and different kind of wait, very different than 
than anything I had experienced before. And there was also that longing of my husband to be able to use his gifts in ministry. And, and we stayed in Manhattan because we really believed God wanted us to plant a new Anglican church there, and that's what we're doing now. But it's taken a long time, a long journey of waiting, praying, seeking counsel. So that that was one season of waiting. The other is that we would really love to have a baby. I was 34 when we got married. I'm almost 36 now, and I haven't conceived. And uh, we've we prayed. You know, we're we're still hopeful. That's what the Lord has for us. But every month, it's a new kind of disappointment, an additional kind of waiting. I'm so grateful for the time that I have spent in this school of waiting during my single years because I need everything I learned there to wait well now in these different assignments. I can say with experience that marriage is very good, but it hasn't taken away my need to depend solely on the Lord. I fully believe that if I give birth and if our church plant goes the way we hope it will, I'll still be just as dependent on the Lord, and I've no doubt I'll be waiting on something else. The goal of our lives should not be to get what we want so that we don't need God anymore. You know, we'd never say that, but that's kind of what's in the back of my mind. If I just get what I want, then I won't need God anymore. Rather, our deepest desire should be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The waiting seasons of life don't hinder this goal. They help us along in it. Do you mind if I got some water? Sorry. Thanks. So that is sort of the thrust of what what does God want for us in our waiting? He wants us to draw near to him and dependence on him. But the question is how to do that. How do we wait well? So I want to give some sort of practical thoughts on, on how to do that. And the first way to wait well is to trust God, thank you, one day at a time. Because I found that it's the future rather than the present that's really hard to get your mind around. If you're single, maybe singleness isn't so bad today. You know, you've got what you need, you've got friends, you've got provision, but you may think, I cannot do this for the rest of my life. Or maybe you have cancer and you're okay now, but you think, I can't do endless cycles of chemo. I just can't do that. Or maybe you're okay with not having children right now, but you think, who's going to take care of me when I'm old? Well, if you feel like you don't have the strength to make it for a lifetime, I want to tell you that's because you don't. You only have the strength to make it for today because God does not give grace in a lifetime supply. He doesn't send it to you in bulk in a savings account. He gives it one day at a time. This was even We even see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus sought daily strength from God the Father. He would go away from his disciples to be by himself. Uh, Mark 1.35 says, Jesus, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus knew he needed that daily time with his Father. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It doesn't say grace ahead of time for everything you may ever need. He's promised to supply what we need when we need it, and he hasn't equipped us for hypothetical future situations. 
C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter to a woman in America, he said, it's seldom the present and the actual that's intolerable. Remember, one is given the strength to bear what happens to one, but not the 101 different things that might happen. So, this idea of getting what we need one day at a time, it, it really, uh, one way that helps me understand it and picture it is the story of the Israelites receiving manna in the wilderness. Now, remember that story. They at first didn't know that the manna would come down every day. They would gather it. They couldn't gather more than they needed for that day because if they kept it overnight, it spoiled, it got worms, it stank. So they had to get used to going to bed every night with full stomachs. They'd had everything they needed to eat that day, but there was nothing in the cupboard for tomorrow. They had to trust God for the next day. So it took them a while to learn this lesson, but they learned it. And you know what? God kept giving them manna, even though they had learned their lesson. He went on feeding them one day at a time. Exodus 16.35 says, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Manna was still God's plan for feeding them for life until they reached the promised land. And what I want us to see from this is that once we start walking in daily dependence on God, we have to keep walking in it. Why does God want it this way? It's because he desires to be in fellowship with us. And one way he draws near to us in that fellowship is by meeting our needs one day at a time. He doesn't just want to give us what we need. He wants to give us himself. He gives us himself through his word. And the trials of our life, the waiting, the pain, make us crave the life-giving sustenance of the daily nourishment of scripture. And those trials are like the hunger pains that drive us to the daily food that we need. Uh, We should be more like the French. The French do not buy bread at Costco and put it in the freezer. (laughs) They go out in the morning and get fresh baguette that is just coming out of the oven. They live by daily bread. We need to seek God's new mercies every morning, not living off what he's given us in the past, not trying to possess what he hasn't yet given us in the future, but what he's given us that day. So if you're walking through infertility, as I am, my question for you is, can you live the next 24 hours without a child? Can you trust God to get you through today? If the answer is yes, then you have what it takes to survive for the long haul. You just need to ask yourself the same question tomorrow. The same thing is true of every other season of waiting that we go through. Now, many years later, after God gave his people manna, he spread another table in the wilderness. Jesus and his disciples were uh, out in, in the wilderness. Jesus was teaching And this was not a conference center. There were no food trucks. You know, there's not a concession stand. And his disciples could not see how they could possibly feed all these people. But Jesus did it with two two fish and five loaves. (coughs) Sometimes when we look at our circumstances, we can't imagine how God would meet our needs. You may be sick and you feel like you've exhausted all your friends already. You've been sick for years, and you've asked people for help, and you feel like, I don't know how I'm going to keep making it because I've run through all my friends. You may have a single daughter, and you worry about her because someday you're not going to be around, and you don't know how God is going to take care of her need for a family. 
You may be desiring to adopt, but you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you don't know how you could, how this could ever work out. But God does not look at your situation and wring his hands. He is not limited by the resources you have at your disposal. This sounds really obvious, but it's something I have to tell myself all the time. The first step toward allowing God to meet your needs is to pray that he will. I find myself thinking, I've got to figure out how God can meet my need before I pray that he would. But that's not true. God has resources at his disposal that we know nothing about. You can bring him your bread and fish or your total lack of any of it and ask him to feed a crowd of thousands. You can look at your future without a clue as to how God could meet your needs over the course of a lifetime and trust that he will. But you have to wait for him to reveal that provision day by day. So the first answer to waiting well is to trust God one day at a time. The second way to wait well is to believe that knowing Jesus is not a consolation prize. Probably most of you in here know in your head that Jesus is more important than anything else in this life, that the giver is more important than his gifts. That can be a hard thing to believe deep down in your heart. I remember one time when I went on a retreat when I was really especially struggling with my singleness, and the speaker showed us a painting of Simeon meeting Jesus in the temple with Mary, the prophet Simeon, and then in the background was Anna the prophetess who waited for years to meet Jesus. And uh, we know that Anna, Anna had a husband and he died after seven years of marriage. So we don't know whether she had any children or anything like that, but we know that she, at the time that we meet her, she's alone. She lives in the temple waiting to see the coming of the Messiah. And as I looked at that picture, I identified with Anna, but it, it was in a way that I felt a little bit angry. And I actually wrote in my journal, Anna's lot has been given to me to wait upon the Lord, but I don't want to be Anna. I want to be Mary there with the child in my arms. You know, I don't want to be the one looking on. I want to be the one there. But even as I prayed that, I knew that I was looking at it the wrong way, that seeing Jesus was not the consolation prize that Anna got. Like, well, at least she got Jesus, even if she didn't get marriage and family and all those other things. While we may not literally lay eyes on Jesus as Anna did, God wants to give us a richer, deeper experience of waiting on himself that's more precious than the thing he's withheld from us. We can trust God that he won't waste our waiting. Anna waited every day in the temple not knowing whether she would see the Messiah. You know, she didn't know whether that waiting would come to end, but she was there and she got to see the hope of her salvation. After seeing Jesus, she could have wholeheartedly affirmed what Psalm 84.10 says, which, which says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. She was literally in the, the courts of the Lord, and that day uh, all her hopes were fulfilled. And maybe you can't say that wholeheartedly right now. I, I understand. But on the other side of waiting, I've no doubt that you will count knowing God as more valuable than any of the blessings that you had to wait for. The third answer to the question of how to wait well is to remember the goodness of God. During that time when my husband lost his job, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms just 
pouring out my prayers and fears to the Lord. And one psalm that I memorized, some verses from Psalm 77 that said, Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? These verses helped me because it made me ask myself, Am I really the first person God has ever lost track of? You know, I, I feel abandoned, but really, do I think that I'm the first one that he hasn't had a hold of? And I share this to say, whether you think of yourself as a theological person or not, it's important to ask yourself theological questions when your waiting leaves you doubting. You need to ask, do you believe that God is all-powerful? Do you believe that God is loving? Do you believe that God is good? If so, he has a purpose for your waiting, even if you can't see it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor, used to say that you have to talk to yourself rather than listening to yourself. <coughs> you know the difference in that. If you listen to your fears and you, you start to doubt, if you talk to yourself, if you preach to yourself the promises of God and what you know of his character, your spirits will list and you'll have hope. Uh, going back to flying and airport uh, illustrations, we don't. it doesn't seem to happen as much anymore, but have you ever been on a plane where you're ordered into a holding pattern? And you're, you're right near your destination, but you're circling. It feels like being taken hostage in the air. It's not a fun thing. But... No matter all the grumbling of the people on the plane, their, their dissatisfaction, their desire to get where they're going, what would a good pilot do? Would a good pilot say, I have heard you. I know you're frustrated and I'm going to land in five minutes whether air traffic control gives me permission or not. <laughs> that would be terrible. You, you crashed, you know. Or, or it, a good pilot knows what he's doing, he has best in mind, and really the people on the plane want the pilot to keep, keep doing what's right. Uh, no matter how aimless your waiting may seem, it may seem like you're circling. If you're God's child, he has a purpose for your holding pattern. Because he is good and loving, he's going to keep you in it until his purpose for your good is accomplished in the fullness of his time. Even if you grumble, he's, he's going to keep you there. So finally, and this is my last point, um, and then we'll, I would love to have any questions you may have. To wait well, we need to look forward to the time when all our waiting will end. And that's, that's uh, part, of the, part of what helps us know that Jesus is not a consolation prize, looking forward to the hope that we have. So uh, my husband is Jewish. He's a Jewish believer in Jesus. When we got married, which the Church of the Advent was so kind and gracious to let us get married in, in the beautiful church, we incorporated several of the Jewish wedding traditions. The first was that we got married under a chuppah, which is a, a tent. We had flowers on it and things like that, but it's, it's just a Muslim, Muslim tent. And there's different thoughts on, on why Jewish people get married under a, a tent, but the basic idea is Abraham and Sarah, our spiritual forefathers, lived in tents. And they lived in tents our whole life. As a married couple, you're setting up a new household. 
but you're still living in a tent because this is not our home. The other tradition is after the minister pronounces you husband and wife, the groom stomps on a glass and breaks it. And the thinking behind this is that even in the moment of greatest joy, when your heart's desire is being fulfilled, we're still for the Jewish people, they look and they see the temple is, has still not been rebuilt. Therefore, there is still sorrow. So the broken glass reminds us that all of our sorrows are not yet gone, that we're still waiting for something more. So, so in Judaism, you'd be waiting for the rebuilding of the temple. We know we're waiting for the, the heavenly temple, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. So at the happiest of moments for Jewish newlyweds, they remember that they're not home yet. The new home that they make together will be a temporary dwelling place. They must look forward to a future promised restoration. As New Covenant believers, we know that that full restoration will only when, come when Christ returns and brings the new Jerusalem. At the moment I became a wife, the shattered glass reminded me that happily ever after will not begin until we are welcomed into that holy city. My singleness ended with my marriage, but I'm a sinful woman married to a sinful man in a fallen world. There is more pain and waiting ahead. But beyond that, we have this beautiful hope that we will be claimed by our heavenly bridegroom who makes all things new. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God promises us such good things in the life to come. He promises that he will be our husband. Now, right now, if I know, I know when I was single, honestly, that didn't sound like quite the same thing to me. I still wanted that human husband, but just because we can't imagine something doesn't mean that it's not more real. That having God, our Maker, as our husband, is going to be somehow less real than having a husband on this earth. He promises an end to barrenness in the life to come. That may not seem the same thing right now as having a child in your arm, but in the life to come, it will seem more real and more splendid than anything in this life could have come. He promises healing, full healing, a new resurrection body. That one, I think everybody can, can imagine that is going to be so <coughs> wonderful. He promises us a home, a house with many rooms. If you're waiting, uh, you know, you may not live near your family, you may live in an apartment, you may um, be in the army and have moved from city to city. There's many things that keep us from feeling at home in this world. But he promises us a permanent home in the life to come. And most of all, he promises us full reconciliation with him. That there will be nothing between, no more sin, and, and our, rec our relationships with each other will be rec reconciled. So even if your season of waiting, whatever you're waiting on right now, ends, your life of waiting will continue if you're waiting for your eternal home. And we talked about the school of waiting. Well, one day we will graduate. I haven't graduated yet. You haven't graduated yet. But we will graduate when all our waiting is over, when Christ returns. And at that point, there won't be any doubt in your mind about what you've waited for. You're waiting for Jesus, and we will have him. So let's help each other Wait well and be ready for that day.
I would love to hear from somebody. If you have questions or if you want to share what you're waiting on or what has sustained you in that way. There may not be, nobody may have any comments, but if you do, I would love to hear from you.